Hello, gentle listener. What follows is an interview with Stephen Cooper, a man who really knows a thing or two about Marius Victorinus. But because this episode is an extremely nerdcore interview, that is to say, Professor Cooper lets loose on his love for Victorinus, his intellectual milieu, his thought, in a way that might make it a bit difficult to understand for non-specialists, I thought I'd make this little tiny quick introduction that might help some people know what we're talking about in this episode. Marius Victorinus was a rhetorician and general cultured dude from Roman North Africa. He was born sometime in the third century. He lived sometime into the fourth century. He might've died in the, around the mid fourth century. He moved to Rome. He made his way up in ways we don't entirely understand. Uh, he was kind of a self-made man into Roman society and became the uh, holder of the chair for rhetoric at Rome, an imperial appointment. So a very successful man. Early in his life, he was known as an anti-Christian polemicist. Later in his life, he becomes a Christian, but a Platonizing Christian, a Christian who brings not just some ideas from Platonism, but a proper mature Platonist metaphysics into Christianity and tries to synthesize the two. Why do we care about Marius Victorinus? One, because he's an example of a kind of what you might call an independent Christian Platonism in Latin. So we know about Christian Platonism, of course, from the Eastern tradition of this that we see in Clement Origen and the Originists. This is an example of a kind of sui generis person developing their own Christian Platonism, which is just interesting. Two, He's incredibly important for the history of Western thought. Don't believe me, gentle listener? Every time you use terms like existence, you're using English terms that come from Latin terms that were coined by Marius Victorinus. He actually made these words up because he was translating Greek terms like hypoxis and in, in, from the Platonists like porphyry into Latin and making up new words, hence existentia things like this. So an incredible watershed for Western European ways of thinking and speaking. Thirdly, he does some interesting esoteric stuff. And the whole question of the noetic triads that we discussed in our special episode on the anonymous commentary on the Parmenides, the Porphyrian question and all that sort of thing, which also might come into the question of Sethian Gnosticism. Well, those who love that stuff, love that stuff. Those who don't, don't have to worry about it. But he presents some very interesting evidence for us in trying to figure out um, who's borrowing from whom, Plotinus from the Gnostics or the Gnostics from Plotinus or a third option. Anyway, uh, he's interesting enough to us as historians of Western esotericism that we couldn't pass over him. A little bit of background. We are, as I mentioned, late third, early fourth century at Rome. What's going on? Well, one of the things that's going on is what's called the Arian controversy. And those keen listeners who've been paying attention know that uh, you have... Arianism, which is a position in Christianity named after this Bishop Arius, but not necessarily to do with him, that just says, look, there's one God, takes that that monotheist position seriously, and then says, well, how does Christ relate to that God? He must be some kind of subsidiary emanation or creation or whatever. And you end up in Arian positions getting something like a subordinationist or even demiurgic approach to Christology and uh, Trinitarianism, of course, the official quote-unquote orthodox position, Nicene position, is what Victorinus will defend. And actually the mental 
hurdles and hoops he jumps through to do that are very interesting. So a lot of background to the following discussion takes place against the background of the Aryan controversies of the early 4th century. God bless and enjoy. Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle. This is the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast. And today we are delighted to be speaking with Stephen A. Cooper, professor of religious studies at Franklin and Marshall College in Pennsylvania. Stephen, thanks very much for joining us. Well, thanks so much for inviting me, Earl. I'm always delighted to talk about Marius Victorinus. Who is Marius Victorinus? Maybe we should start with the basics of his biography, because they're actually interesting. Sure. And we actually know more about him than a lot of the late antique guys we talk about. We do. But I would say that, that the headline about him is, is he is the most uh, sort of complete Latin Neoplatonist Christian that we have any texts from. Uh, with his knowledge as his absolute fluency in Greek, uh, something Augustine did not have. Uh, next, Boethius is the only one comparable to him and I'm not sure Boethius, although I respect him incredibly for, for all his work, I, I don't believe he has a level of creativity uh, that Victorinus did in, in designing a, a true Platonist Christian synthesis of uh, a doctrine of first principles or a Trinitar Trinitarian thought. And Victorinus also wrote the first uh, commentaries on the Apostle Paul in Latin. Uh, and we also have writings uh, from his pre-Christian period, which was most of his professional life. So the stuff we do know about his bio is all from uh, Augustine in the Confessions uh, and also from Jerome uh, in a couple texts. And apart from that, we uh, have almost no information except for uh, his granddaughter's epitaph, which is sort of an amazing find. Uh, and it, uh, she was marrying, uh, like his conversion to Christianity stuck in the family because his granddaughter, Maria Asia or Akia, uh, died in childbirth. And she remembers a time that uh, how brightly uh, the name, the family name shone when her grandfather uh, taught rhetoric in Rome, uh, which is an amazing kind of find just, just to think that whole two generations later, they were still proud of this man. Mm. But but we, we owe, in terms of the chronology, the one firm point we have is, is given by Jerome that says Victorinus, as a, as a professor of rhetoric, the municipal, uh, that is imperially funded professor of rhetoric in the city of Rome, was granted honors in the year 354 while uh, Constantius, and then you taught rhetoric, says Jerome, under Constantius. Yep. Augustine tells us that Victorinus, oh, I'm sorry, this is Jerome, was in extreme old age, in extrema uh, senectute, when he converted to Christianity. It, it, the dates of his conversion to Christianity, uh, almost certainly 355 or 356. I, I would like to be able to narrow it down uh, to one of those two dates. It, it's, it, we, we can't do it. Mm. But at any rate, if if the man in 355 or 356 was in extrema senectute, and we, we can figure he was born in the 280s sometime. Yeah. Which is to say, old enough to remember the persecutions in uh, North Africa 
an under Diocletian and his successors. Yeah. Really under Diocletian successors, and then again, the slight revival of those persecutions, I think, in, in 302 or 304, whatever that last burst of top-down persecutions was. And, and we know he came from North Africa, but we know nothing about his life in North Africa. Now, the fact that he worked for a living tells us he was not from an aristocracy. Yeah. Um, it also seems like when he received those honors in, in Rome, he was promoted to uh, the, the lowest rank of the senatorial order uh, because some of the, his manuscripts contain a weir clarissimus. Yeah. Right? So the lowest level of senatorial order. The manuscripts of his early rhetorical works do not contain that, but some of the Christian works do do have that inscript that uh, tag on him. So he was promoted for teaching uh, for I think several decades, at least in Rome, the sons the sons of the aristocracy, right? And these were his people, and so Augustine, who is the only one that tells us about his conversion, besides the fact that he did convert, which Jerome tells us. Right. Augustine spins a whole story that Augustine apparently got from from the great old man Simplician uh, that that we know from from Augustine's questions and answers that that Simplician had been a confidant of Victorinus uh, probably sometime in the in the three fifties and they'd been on very familiar terms. Now the interesting thing is, is that Simplician was probably half of Victorinus's age. I think likely one of his former pupils. Who was a Christian, and they used to talk, and, and apparently Simplician was like, "Say, fella, you might want to consider uh, our religion." And Victorinus, according to Augustine, was like, huh, "Like, I'm already there. Like, I already believe that stuff." Yeah. And, Sim- and Simplician told Augustine that Victorinus, uh, you know, Simplician would say, "You know, I'll, I'll believe it when I see you in church." Yeah. To which Victorinus returned. Do the walls make Christians? Ha, ha, ha. Right? And, and Augustine says, you know, they had this conversation many times. Victorinus was always like, do the walls make Christians, buddy? Obviously thinking not. But then Augustine tells us that one day Victorinus showed up in Simplicius's door and said, let's go to church. Hmm. Right? I, will, I want to become a Christian. Right? So, so something happened. Hmm. Right? And we don't know what happened except that he changed his mind about about just being able to be a pure Christian in your heart and not have any sociological association with Christians. Yeah. Right? And Augustine says that Simplician had kind of inferred that Victorinus was afraid to offend his, his proud pagan friends. Right. Members of the aristocracy whom he had taught. So, so for context for here, we might want to... Um emphasize something we've talked about before on the podcast that specifically at Rome, the senatorial class and its kind of hangers on maintained a kind of staunch, they were sort of like the Tory party. They, they maintained this staunch uh, polytheist. We are old school Romans. We do things the old ways uh, culture well into the period when the whole Roman empire had been legally increasingly Christianized through various edicts. And Presumably they could get away with this because they were the senatorial class. So even when things started to get quite dicey for polytheists in the 5th century, 4th and 5th centuries, they they were immune and they were able to just go on sacrificing to uh, Fortuna and whatever and doing all the kind of old traditional stuff. Yeah, and, and we know that Constantine 
of course, made sort of concessions so as not, not to offend anyone in Rome. Constantius seems to have, have done the same. Yeah. You know, because, of course, Italy was far less Christianized than parts in the Eastern Mediterranean. Yep. Um, you know, and th- there were some really dreadful events in Rome surrounding uh, Damas's uh, election to, to Pope in 366, when supporters of Damasus and, and Orsinus, who probably had a better claim to be Pope, supporters of Damasus, Damasus like hired a mob and they massacred a couple people in the church in which Orsinus was holed up in. Um, I don't believe uh, Victorinus uh, witnessed those events because we've got a passage, I think in, in Paul's letter to the Galatians where, uh, I forget exactly, Paul's talking about, you know, you know, don't be tearing each other to pieces. Right, and there, there's no Victorinus. We have comments on that from him, and he says nothing about like, "Hey, Christians, we, we need not to tear each other to pieces." So, right. my theory is he's probably dead by by three fifty okay. sixty five, and it's not clear he finished his series on the Paul commentaries. All we have from him surviving is commentaries on Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, but there are internal references that say he wrote on Romans, First and Second Corinthians as well. So we don't know whether he got to. Colossians or not but it seems it's clear he meant to write a complete series okay so that brings us in a very nice segue to what he wrote um and before we get to that I just wanted to say something that what you were saying made me think of you know you say he converted in old age and something happened and um a casual reader or a casual listener might think well, it's not necessarily the case that he converted because something happened. Uh, he might have converted for expediency. He's a prominent Roman. He's operating in a increasingly Christianized milieu. We don't know the exact pressures that were on him, but it might have been expedient to become a Christian at this or that point in his career. But when you read his writings, it becomes clear that that's not the case, that he really did become a Christian because he is wrote these deeply... Um, engaged uh, exegetical works on the Pauline corpus. But why don't you introduce his writings yeah. as a whole? So so let me comment first about what I consider the cynical suggestion that he converted for expediency. Well, it's not unknown, is it, in late antiquity? No, <laughs> it, it's absolutely not. Uh, it's absolutely not. Um, and very famously, forget whether it's, uh, it's one of the other aristocrats from Rome who said, you know, make me bishop of Rome. And uh, I forget, it's not Praetextatus, no, it's Symmachus. Symmachus, yeah, make me bishop of Rome and I'll become a Christian. So Victorinus held the municipal chair of rhetoric, which is a salaried position. Um, it's not clear at all that that there was anything to be gained. It wasn't like he was seeking preferment you know, to some imperial position, man's in his mid, mid to late 70s. The other thing um, that, that, that's really suggestive is, is a remark in the Paul commentaries when he's, when he's commenting on Paul's conversion, which, which the apostle recounts in uh, chapter two of Galatians. And Victorina says, what is so magnificent when one's mind is overcome and one finds oneself promoting the very thing that you sought to wipe out. Now, now it doesn't have to be read autobiographically. 
but there's an interesting coincidence between that phrase in his commentary on Galatians and what Augustine says that for, for many years, Victorinus had thundered against Christianity and, and had been a, and like the, the devil had used his sharp tongue against, against this new religion. Mm. Um, and, you know, Addo has given, given us reasons for thinking, well, maybe, maybe that was a, a retrojection on the part of Augustine uh, to, to retrojecting the tense atmosphere in Rome in the 380s back to the 350s. You know, that's possible. But Pierre Addo's teacher, Pierre Corcel, came out to the opposite conclusion and did take uh, Augustine's report more or less at face value. Ladies, okay, so, so let, me, let, me, let me slow down a bit and, and give you the, the list of his writings. So we have basically three pre-Christian texts from him. One he's most famous for, and, and I mean famous in the Middle Ages, yeah. <laughs> uh, thanks to the recommendation of Cassiodorus, uh, was his commentary on Cicero's De Inventione, uh, which was used as a standard teaching text throughout the, uh, throughout the Middle Ages. Uh, Cassiodorus uh, recommends it in his institutions. Cassiodorus uh, mentions uh, Victorinus' secular writings. And it's, it's a, such an interesting text. I've written a very long article about that because that is the text where Victorinus mentions Christians. Mm. And, of course, that has occasioned some debate. Like, was he a crypto-Christian already when he wrote that? Uh, I, I don't think so. Uh, he appears to be a Platonist. There's a preface to the first book of the Commentary on Cicero where he lays out some basic ideas of Platonism. Uh, but the thing that shows up in this text is he's a very engaged teacher, right? There's sort of asides in it. Uh, there are some sketches, some diagrams of like an ontological tree. And at one point, Victorinus is 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 talking. Uh, he's giving an example of a certain kind of argument, conditional hypotheticals, and he says, "If Victorinus teaches, he has hope." Using himself as notion, like if I'm teaching, surely there's some someone's out there, so I've got some kind of hope. Love so it. the 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 profile that that Augustine gives us of him that he had a sense of humor completely fits with what we read in uh, this what is a pretty dry text, the commentary on De Inventione. I, I find it totally interesting, and, and I, I read it my grad school years in the eighties. Uh, and learned a whole lot about rhetoric uh, reading reading that text. Mm. And it's just, and he also, in that text, he tries to incorporate uh, some Aristotelian logic and dialectic, injecting the categories into it, uh, clarifying some things he thought Cicero got wrong, uh, makes some really interesting comments about race, discussing skin color, uh, which he treats as, as an accident falling outside the substance. Mm. translated, you're a human being, no matter what color you are, it's kind of irrelevant. Yeah. Uh, which, which I just thought is sort of an interesting note. Uh, so, so yeah, so from this pagan period, we've got this commentary uh, on Cicero. Uh, we've got a treatise called De Grammatica, like on grammar. And it, most of it is not Victorinus, but it looks like he plagiarized another Latin author, Aphthonius, and sort of incorporated Aphthonius's work into his own uh, De Grammatica. 
Uh, that's been edited by, by Italo Mariotti, who has a really excellent introduction where he goes over a lot of the conventions of uh, Roman rhetoric and, and teaching of grammar. Uh, the most, another very interesting but short work uh, is called De Definitionibus, Concerning Definitions. Uh, it's a very terse work. It's the only work from antiquity on definition, which he argues, you know, definitions are the first principles of all argumentation. Uh, you know, it's just a terrific little work. It's being re-edited by a by an excellent uh, German philologist, uh, Thomas Riesenweber, who who contributed to to the edited volume that that I and Václav uh, Nemec of Charles University in Prague just put together, and. Uh, Riesenweber, in, in his contribution, translated some parts of that. He's, he's mostly establishing a critical text, uh, but it's, and I expect when Riesenweber comes out with his finished critical text, someone will translate it, if not me, somebody else. Yeah. But uh, yeah, totally worth reading. Victorinus also seems to have had some other grammatical works that we no longer possess on, on, on solecisms, and then he may have written uh, some additional commentaries, you know. There's some. There's an unclear passage in Boethius that suggested uh, Victorinus wrote commentaries on Aristotle's Categories and Aristotle's um, De Interpretatione. But both Ado and Corsell have given us reasons to think that some scribe kind of botched it, and it's really Boethius's works being talked about. Okay. Right. I mean, there's no one else mentions those works. The other most fascinating pre-Christian work that you know what I probably I probably lose a joint to my pinky on which hand I play guitar. Left, it'd be it'd be rough. I'd go with a joint of the pinky on the left hand. The Libri Platonicorum, the books of the plate. Well, that now we come to it. So he's we do don't we? He's translated some Plotinus. We don't know what. Uh, some porphyry, and these come down to Augustine. And one of the, the weird things about the history of ideas that we noted a couple episodes ago in our uh, Plato Latinus episode is that for some reason those translations, which you'd think would have entered the canon in the Western Latinate world and been like sort of precious gems of antique learning, do not get transmitted. They just disappear well, that it disappear without a trace, except for Augustine. But Augustine, as you know, Book 10 of the City of God, he, he quotes Plotinus. Mm. And I assume these are Victorinus's translations. This is what everyone, I think, assumes. Yeah. That's right. And, and also and what he quotes. Porphyry. Porphyry, De Regressu Animae. Okay, so we don't have a title from Porphyry attested by that name. And there's yeah. been a lot of dust thrown in the air? Was it a section of uh, Philosophia ex oracles, uh, philosophy from oracles? Um, was it part of an anti-Christian work? So, so my theory on this is that Victorinus did translate some works that were anti-Christian in intent and perhaps in substance. I mean, because if we think, if, if you're fluent in Greek and you're, and you're a teacher of rhetoric and a more than amateur philosopher, you want to make Plotinus available to the Romans who are no longer reading Greek. Yeah. Great. And you want to make some porphyry, right? Plotinus' is most famous student available. Mm. Uh, but, but we're in the 340s. I am 
I, I know there's divided scholarly opinion on this, but I, I think Porphyry's uh, against the Christians really was a very serious attack on Christianity. Again, yeah. this is a text that we've only got fragments as quoted by others and maybe uh, as digested by Macarius Magnus. And did they really come from Porphyry? But some some of those fragments are, are such clever attacks on Christianity yeah. that I wouldn't be surprised if Victorinus translated some of that material as well. He's ramped it up, and, hasn't he, from the days of Celsus. It's like the next level attack uh, on Christianity. Because, yeah, because it's, it's, it's a porphyry seemed to take the scriptures more seriously. Porphyry yeah. certainly knew the work of Origen. He knew there were intellectual Christians performing allegorical treatments of the scriptures, which Porphyry thought were wrong kind of document to do allegory on. Right. You know, and, and he, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense that, that, that he would write against Christianity. Because right? we, we know in Plotinus' circle at Rome, there were Christians mm-hmm. uh, and Gnostics and it's it's not quite clear whether that sentence means these are one these are these are two groups of people. I think the evidence for the earliest Gnostics is that they they were Christian. Yeah, that, that's that's my that's my view. I don't, of course I don't they were, they in. they were. Uh, I mean, of course they were. They they were yes, excluded right. eventually with hindsight as they were heresiological fied. But um, we shouldn't forget that you know Valentinus almost became hmm. bishop of Rome. Exactly. In previous generations, so you know the history is not written until it's written. That's right. Christoph Marxis, who's sort of our living expert in Valentinus, does not think Valentinus was ever excluded from the Roman Communion because there's no clear evidence that he was. But but uh, but others were. But you know, so so it's funny. In, in my grad student days, in the 1980s at Columbia, New York, I was taught there was a pre-Christian. Uh, Gnosticism. I was still mm-hmm. taught that. I hadn't yet read Karsten Kolpe. Kolpe pr- pretty much puts paid to that whole idea. That, yeah. That's right. And then Yamaguchi, who kind of did an English version of, of Kolpe stuff. And I was beginning to suspect as much the same because all the guys whose names we know that were Gnostic teachers that, we, that are actually attested, they were also Christians. Yep. So, so it took a while. I, I kind of figured that one out myself after I started started teaching undergrads and really had to read up on this stuff and make my own decision. I thought, no, no, no. This is a, it's a Christian movement. And they're trying to figure out the same thing mm-hmm. that other Christians are figuring out. It's like, how did he appear to be human but was so clearly God? You know? Yeah. They're, 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 I mean, they're, you they're could argue that— different. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. You could argue that Marcion is, is a— is almost like a super, super Protestant avant le lettre because he's just so into Paul. He's, yeah. you know, yeah. that in, depending on your definition of Christianity, he's more Christian than the Christians. Oh, I got fascinated about Marcion and I, I spent several years doing research on that. It's yet to get into publication, uh, but I have some very definite thoughts about Marcion. Well, um, if we have time for that, because, let's get back into it. Yes, yes. So we are getting back to Victorinus's Christian works. Yes. Now, now the, the sort of footnote to the discussion of Neoplatonism and Marcion and Gnostics is that Victorinus is like Plotinus, a pro-cosmic thinker. All right, we get We get this... I, I just think the term dualism is used very wrongly in, in, in modern discourse. Yeah. And what we're really talking about is, do you say yes to the physical world, even if it's problematic? Hmm. Plot, Plotinus 
hates the Gnostics because they say no. I'm not sure Plotinus hates them. Does he hate? I'm, I'm not sure. But people who do not like the cosmos are maligning the creator. Yeah. That would include Gnostics and Marcion. I think Victorinus is very much in the same camp. At the same time, they also see the body as a great source of problems. Mm-hmm. I you know, I can go on about that and agreeing with them from various modern standpoints. But yeah, let's 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 start with his Christian writings. So he converted Christianity in, in 55 or 56, and it appears that by 357 or 358, he's published the first series of Trinitarian writings. Right? This is the point in church history when the Emperor Constantius is really after Athanasius, exiles him, uh, exiles him again. Now give us give us a bit of background because we've hardly yeah. spoken okay. about right, Athanasius. Right. Um, okay. There so, are theological reasons, right, for this. Happening. Yes, yes. So, so I, I guess let's back up to uh, three fifty five and the the first major Trinitarian controversy that breaks out in the Constantinian era in Alexandria. A bishop is preaching always father, always son, which upsets a certain presbyter named Arius, who, who is more typically Platonist in insisting that there is only one unbegotten principle, and that is God. Right. And that the line between creature and creation happens right away after that un, unbegotten principle And if the Son is confessed as begotten, which, of course, Christ is, but by all, then if Christ is begotten, he came into being. If he came into being, he is a creature. Kind of an an iron logic. And and it's it's from a sense of piety. Worship the Father alone. And 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 we have plenty of subordinationalist uh, language in the New Testament to support that. Even in the Gospel of John, the Father is greater than I. Right, so so one understands why uh, yeah. Arius would raise this. Right, but this became a huge problem mm. uh, because if the sun is a creature and you're worshiping the sun, in in that back to paganism, it's not monotheist right? so anyway. It is, eh, but 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 this is the issue. Uh, the polytheism is a problem, but for for biblical people, any attempt to compromise the unity of the Godhead also feels like a problem. We all know what happens here. Bishops gather, kind of they lock lock arms with the Alexandrian Church and Bishop Alexander's successor, Athanasius. Uh, they move into a council. Constantine suggests, if we believe Eusebius of Caesarea, which which I actually do at this point, uh, Constantine suggests the word homoousios to define that relation between uh, the Father and the Son, meaning of the same substance. Now. Constantine probably doesn't know enough philosophy to understand that the word usia is is used often of material substances or even property or your own goods. But he suggests it, so the bishops all sure we'll put that in the creed. You know, we know that Arius and his buddies, these three Libyan bishops, right, aren't aren't going to buy it. That'll exclude them. Mm-hmm. It excludes them. So politics right? is, politics is present in these theological controversies. That might be a, a takeaway from this. Absolutely. And, and this is even more so the case with Constantine's son, Constantius, whom Timothy Barnes has written a wonderful book about 
and I think vindicated Constantius as a pretty good guy, despite his weaknesses. You know, even though he kind of laid heavy hands on the church, he never executed bishops. He would exile them. He, he did, did not want to use real force against the church, but Constantius saw him following up on Constantine's footsteps and wanting a unified church. Mm. You want a unified empire? All right, Constantius, he had two brothers, right? After Constantine died, Constans and Constantinus divided up the empire. Uh, one of them, I believe, was killed. Constantius fought against the other, killed him. So Constantius had the whole empire, and he wanted all the bishops on the same page. Yep. So he couldn't believe there was all this fighting about the word homoousios. And to make the complicated story short, he found some bishops who would agree with him in trying to uh, say homoousios should never be spoken again. And, so, and, and one of them suggested, hey, how about homoousios? like in substance, right? Basil of Ancyra. Documents from a council in 357 where these bishops that Constantius was favoring, trying to get away from Homoousius, documents reach Rome, and it looks like Victorinus freaks out when he sees this idiocy of homoiousios. Right? And I'll, I'm going to back up and describe his first uh, Christian writings, and how it looks as if this, this synod of 357 reached Victorinus in 358 and made him change a, a, a big treatise he was working on. Okay. So the first Christian treatises we have from Victorinus appear to be a letter exchange. They open with a letter from a man named Candidus, Candidus I, and Candidus appears to be a Latin Neoplatonist who is just translating terms into Greek, all these philosophical terms we know from Neoplatonism. Candidus lays it down at the beginning. Hello, old friend Victorinus. Every kind of begetting is a change. God is unchangeable. So nothing begotten can be God. QED, uh, Christ is, is not really God. Or he's God in honor, but not in the same substance as the Father. Just trying to say, begetting is inconstant. Begetting is a kind of change. Yep. Uh, and you can't have change in God, as any Platonist knows. Therefore, the result of such a change cannot be a God. Okay, so Victorinus responds in a treatise called Ad Candidum to Candidus, uh, where much of the same philosophical vocabulary uh, that we saw in Candidus's letter emerges. And uh, Victorinus just develops a series of arguments to refute Candidus's position and to support the Nicene Creed's phrase about Christ being homoousios of the same substance with the Father. Uh, after uh, this, is, it's a very impressive treatise uh, on Candidus. And then there's a second letter from Candidus, which is really just, it's got a little bit of a heading Dear old Victorinus, well, see these letters some very learned men have written. And we've got a letter from Arius. Mm -hmm. We've also got a letter. And we have Greek, Greek copies of these. Uh, and we've also got a letter of Eusebius of, of Nicomedia, one of Arius' allies, to him. And, and that's about all there is to this the second letter of Candidus. And then Victorinus wrote a long treatise, um, which is called Adversus. Arium 1. 
against Arius' first volume or first book. Okay, this it's the treatise starts out very nicely, like a jovial discussion with his philosophical partner. This is what I like. Of course, the name Candidus, like candid. Yeah. Like the honest nice guy. guy. Yeah. Yeah. On you know, nice guy. They're having like, say, old buddy, what do you what do you think of this? Well, let, let, what do you think of this? So, uh, Victorinus' second response to Candidus uh, uh, begins with a survey of scripture, very peacefully. Well, let's let's go through all the scriptures, and Victorinus finds he's reading the Septuagint, right? The Hebrew Bible is translated into Greek, and he finds the word uzia in, in various compounds. Yep. Right, because because the the anti-homoousion people were saying the word homoousios is not in scripture, therefore we should not be using it in a creed. And Victorinus is like, well, it is in scripture, but sometimes with you know different prefixes or an adjective, you know, in different forms. But Victorinus is saying the word uzia is in scripture in a variety of places, and he trots all these out, and then he goes through the New Testament and looks at all of the Christological statements that support a very high Christology. But about halfway through that book, the tone changes, and from this sort of peaceful, let's look at scripture and see what it says, to these polemics against Basil of Ansira, and this notion that the sun is not of the same substance, but rather of like substance or similar substance. Yeah. And, and jolly Victorinus now appears to be enraged at the stupidity of Basil van Syra for failing to realize that when you're talking about substance, like similarity is not a category that works, hmm. right? Similarity is, is, has to do with degrees. It has to do with the category of quality in Aristotle's categories, not the category of usia or talking about real things, substances. Yeah. So, so it, it looks as if Victorinus halfway through this first uh, the treatise called Adversus Aurium One has received some synodal documents that show that Constantius has made this effort to find some bishops to get around the language of the Nicene Creed of Homoousios. So, so we have this other question. So Victorinus, having converted to Christianity one or two years beforehand, is now entering into the theological controversy you know, firing like, on all on, on all sides. Yeah, he's like he's like coming hot out of the gate, right? I guess because exactly. he's already a, um, a rhetorician and an intellectual, so he's used to disputation. It's a way of life for him, a professional way of life, and he's now just taking his expertise and turning it into the uh, heady realms of Trinitarian theology in the fourth century. That's right, and he's fully equipped with, I think, a very minute. Uh, knowledge of discussion the Platonist schools, and he's simply, literally rendering all those beautiful long compound words that we can use in Greek into Latin. Mm. All right. So, so one of the things that earlier twentieth-century scholarship was doing was categorizing his neologisms. You're probably familiar with uh, uh, the, the great Scottish uh, Alexander Souter wrote a glossary of later Latin, and one of Souter's students was. Frederick Forsyth Bruce, who, who is really a biblical scholar, he's written a great deal on Paul, but uh, Souter told him, eh, work over Victorinus and, and, and you know, give me a total K 
account of all the neologisms he comes up with. And, and Bruce has really drawn up this incredible list of words that that are just not witnessed before in Latin and that Victorinus, seemingly like, like Tertullian also, is simply translating from the Greek and, and giving us a far richer philosophical vocabulary in Latin, in Latin than we're aware of. Of course, right. we are missing, for the most part, Cicero's translations of Plato, right, which... You know, you know, which is it's a pity, but it's it's not it, Plato's language do, is not quite of the same. Um, it's it's not as thick as as the language of the later Platonists who are building on Plato. Right. Well, it's not as metaphysical. It's not as kind of uh, yeah. I guess metaphysical is the best term. Plato is playing around with ideas in a dramatic form that the later Platonists turn into metaphysical doctrines in a essay form. Right. Uh, yeah. So you seem to be reflecting the uh, British reading of the Parmenides, which holds it to be a logical exercise rather than a description of, of the movement of the one toward the many. No, which I'm is of course uh, the Platonist. Exactly. No, I'm a I'm a complete agnostic as to what as to Plato's intentions. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll what did he mean too. when he wrote the Parmenides? I throw my hands up and surrender. I have no idea. Um, yeah, I'm 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 a big fan of the notion of an esoteric teaching of Plato, the, the lecture on the good. Yep. Uh, also the descriptions that Aristotle gives it, his metaphysics. Yes. Of, of the notion of a descent from the one to the many. So uh, listeners really who have, have not listened to our episodes on Plato might want to go back. We talk about uh, uh, Plato's unwritten doctrines, the lecture on the good. We talk about ancient ideas about Platonic esotericism, and then we also talk about the modern schools of thought that interpret Plato as an esoteric writer in this or that way. Um, if you're if you're au fait with that stuff, great, we can continue this conversation. It's clear to me that Plato is definitely doing some esoteric stuff, but it's also unclear to me that, well, what's unclear to me is that any, say, of the Tubian Schule scholars who, who read Plato as an esotericist and say, this is what he really means, that they've got it right. And uh, it it may be that he doesn't really mean anything in the sense of a doctrine because if he'd wanted to convey a doctrine he could have written a doctrine but he didn't he wrote drama so ex hypothesis that would be what would be contained in the in the lecture on the good yes if we want to think about plato as an esotericist who had a secret doctrine and then the question the very glaring question is Plato as an esotericist with a secret doctrine, why does he deliver this lecture on the good to all comers in an open forum in Athens? What the hell and, would and, that be about? Right, and why don't we have a copy of it? Right. No, it, it, it kills me. There are several things that kills me we don't have a copy of, including uh, Plato's lecture on the good, complete copy of Origins uh, on, on First Principles in Greek, as well as the books of the Platonists. Mm. Okay, yep. so, so victory, victory, this is writings. The problem is they've been mistitled, and the fault is – well, it's not Jerome's fault. The fault is modern editors. So Jerome says in his Unfamous Men that Victorinus wrote books against against Arius versus Arium. He wrote mm -hmm. books in, in, in what he calls in a dialectical manner, more dialectico. Right. That Jerome says, and here he's right, that no one but the learned understand. But because Jerome said he wrote books adversus arium against Arius, when Victorinus's 
nine treatises, and this included the two by Candidus, mm-hmm. uh, were discovered, the modern editors supplied the title Adversarium One for this this first, really the second reply to Candidus. And then there appears to be a part two of that, which was mistakenly called Adversus Arium 1b. But if you read the opening, it's clearly a different treatise, because the opening of Adversus Arium 1a tells you it's part of the letter exchange with Candidus. By the time you get to what they're calling Adversus Arium 1b, it's a philosophical disputation where he takes up in medias res. Right. Okay. So that should really be one, if anything. It it, it should probably have a title uh, that that, that does not, that is different from the preceding one, right? This is how he begins the treatise we're talking about um, called 1B. Spirit, logos, nous, wisdom, substance. Is it the case that all these things are one? Or is each one different from the other? No little preface that indicates it's a continuation of the other. Just a series of philosophical questions that in in rhetorical fashion, Victorinus is putting out these questions, he's going to try to solve them. Hmm. It's a separate treatise. And this is the treatise that uh, Pierre Adot and, and Michel Tardieu discovered has these parallels to the Nag Hammadi treatise Zostrianus, and that was in, in 1996, I believe they published that. But uh, after this, there's another treatise that, again, is erroneously titled Adversarium 2. Then there's Adversarium 3, again, wrongly titled, Adversarium uh, 4, and then there's a, a little piece that follows Adversarium 4, and, and it's called um, On Receiving or On Accepting the Homoousion. It's just a little short piece. It's kind of a summary. Um, and then we have three hymns mm-hmm. where we get the Trinitarian theology and sort of uh, it, it's not it's not regular Greek or Latin verse with meter. It's sort of uh, uh, accented strophes, that the experts say. And it, it's, it's not like Ambrose's hymns or, or the one thing we've got from Augustine where they're metered, properly metered Latin verse. It seems to be more uh, what the experts in, in liturgical uh, poetry call uh, accented meters, which would have been something that could have been chanted with 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 a congregation, right? Uh, and it's thick with the same translated Greek terms and vocabulary. The second hymn has some fantastic autobiographical, just just little just little glimpses of. Uh, kind of spin-offs on, on the curie. I'll, I'll just read a couple lines. This is, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy. Have mercy, Lord, because I have trusted you. Have mercy, Lord. And so, so the, and there's, and, th- and then it gets even more personal toward the end of that. And it says, uh, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy. I love the world because you made the world. I have been detained by the world in the world's jealousy over your own. Now I hate the world because I've gotten hold of the spirit. Wow. And he, and he goes on to say, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy. Long do I fight back. 
Long do I resist my enemy, but the flesh is still with me, the flesh in which the devil was overcome. And, and it's in the hymns where we start to see the Pauline and the Johannine motifs overlapping with the Platonism in this personal note. Yeah. Um, so yeah. There, there, there's the few bits of personal piety we see. Uh, I mean, we see little bits of personal piety in the Trinitarian treatises when, when he, he prays for like, with God's help, you know, or God willing, I'll, I'll write another treatise, this kind of thing. Uh, we also see that stuff in the Paul commentaries. Uh, they're, they're just notes of what I call personal piety. Right. Everything suggested genuine concern about the afterlife will have been part of his motivations in converting. Right. What, what, why else does one convert? Well, uh, in, in, in late antiquity, if, if you don't believe in an afterlife, hmm. I mean, I, I really think Christianity in the ancient world is an afterlife religion. And we know that Mithraism was something of a competitor, but that was more of a, more of a selective initiatory cult. Uh, yes, we have these uh, epithets for gravestones that show there were, there were plenty of pagans who didn't believe in an afterlife at all. Like, uh, I was, I am not, I will not be, yeah. who cares, right? Yeah. <laughs> Those kind of lovely expressions. But it also seems like a, a lot of uh, Greeks and Romans worried about uh, the afterlife. And I, I just think, kind of a side note about why people convert to Christianity, I'm, I'm convinced it was the martyrdoms, because right? okay. people are ready to die. Right? Christian blood is seed. Faith. Yeah, Tertullian had it, yeah. Mm. yeah. And, and I'm not sure why we should think about Victorinus outside of those kinds of religious concerns, because after all, if he was a Neoplatonist, he absolutely believed that the soul was, was from eternal realities and would return to eternal realities. Yeah. Although yeah, so it's, a, a, a polytheist Platonist typically wouldn't say that there's anything you can do about that or, you know, that they would they would maybe say, depending on how you live your life, that's going to determine your next state right. and indeed right. your next incarnation, depending on their exact theory of metempsychosis. But it's it's a different approach than the, the Christian approach. Yeah, um, yeah, certainly, certainly we know from both Plotinus and Porphyry that, that the notion that uh, following following what Plato says and some of the myth of Ur and the other places, there is a return of the soul to different bodies. Yep. And, and this is the part, of, I, I, I actually really love Porphyry. <laughs> and, and I love his fear that, oh, but if there's reincarnation of the soul, like your mother could be reincarnated as a donkey and you could be riding on her back and beating her. Like, and that can't be, right? Because that's just too horrifying on a sort of religious psychological level. So mm. it can't be. Right. right? And so Porphyry is like, no. And, and by the way, thought Porphyry, no, male souls don't get reborn in female bodies. He seemed not to have wanted that option either. Yeah. I mean, who, who knows? Yeah. Well, but Plotinus, I mean, Porphyry, diff well, there's the question is whether Porphyry believes the same thing in all the eras of his writing. And I personally think right. he changes a lot. Uh, I agree with the ancient, I agree with Eunapius who says this and also with, um, with, oh, yeah, with yeah, Ide, yeah. who okay. also thinks that there's yep, you know, yep. eras in Porphyry's writing. I, but, we've also got that, yeah, yeah. No, I, I totally agree with that. It's, it's clear that Porphyry changed. We, we hear about how he changed his mind and moved to accept Plotinus's position after studying with Longinus. And yeah, um, whether it's that simple or not, I don't know. But he, he's definitely inconsistent in his across his whole corpus. Some scholars disagree with that. But yeah, mm -hmm. anyway... Um, the thing is, Plotinus actually 
maintains the very unpopular belief that, well, Plato says souls can reincarnate as uh, animals. So, yep, they can. Plato said it. I believe it. Yeah. Well, and he gives reasons for it in, in, uh, for example, Ennead 6-7. Soul is is such a multifaceted, powerful thing that it it can be whatever it wants. It can be a human. It can be a daimon. It can be a a donkey. Right. Which which really fits in uh, with the sort of Aristotelian notion of soul and its various levels, which I think is just fabulous. Psuche, we should say, because soul is just such a hard word for so many English speakers. whereas, Whereas I think... Uh, a lot of what Aristotle said about the different different levels of psuche, a, a vegetable psuche, a mm. animal psuche, and then a rational psuche, works really, really well for thinking through what's now being called post-humanism. Not that the ancients would have disag- would, would have liked this sort of displacement of the human soul as something special, because they think a rational soul is kind of a level above, you know, the dog, my beloved cats, the fox, or whatever. Yeah. I have, to say, I have to say I agree with them. I think there is something special about humans. We transform the world more than other animals. But yes, we are a rational soul using a body. I, I, I don't see how you get around that. Doesn't mean we're rational all the time. No. So we have Marius Victorinus. We know uh, something about his life. We know kind of what he wrote, that he's very engaged in these theological controversies of his age, but he's multifaceted. He also writes kind of hymns in a sort of mm. popular style from the heart, almost like uh, not, not fancy posh stuff. Uh, for example, that we find in Synesius, another uh, right. convert right. to Christianity, uh, allegedly or whatever. Um, but, but writing elegant, refined Greek hymns in a traditional style, writing more c- kind of um, stuff for the people, but also writing high end philosophic justifications for Trinitarian theology. Now, what I think would be really, really interesting to talk about is his importance, his Nachleben to some degree. Um, One thing I find really important is this huge translation thing. So in terms of the history of Western esotericism, but also just in the history of Western thought, and by Western, I mean in the narrow sense of sort of Latinate European and then post-Latinate European thought, I mean, this guy invents the word existence, doesn't he? He invents a bunch of words that go on to have incredible long lives in the history of ideas. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah, existentia, subsistentia. Uh, He's just trying to find ways in Latin to use this Greek vocabulary. He he takes the, the, the wonderful articular Greek infinitive. Yeah. With to be, ta ani. And just uses straight up esse, the infinitive, to be, yeah. to describe primal, uh, we have to use this language, a level of Godhead. Not, not that there are levels, but the eternal life of the divine being starts, if we can say there's any starting, which there isn't, as indeterminate, as without boundaries, as a pure infinity that somehow pours itself out, and as Plotinus would have it, the second hypothesis looks back and receives shape and determination. And Victorinus runs with that, but it's been shown by numerous scholars that that he's not really Plotinian as originally uh, the earlier late 19th, early 20th century literature thought, but but he has a far less a subordinationalist understanding of, of the emergence 
of the second and the third hypostasis from from the one. Well, he would right? have to he if he's a borrowed from Porphyry, yeah, right. And well, and if he's a Christian Trinitarian, he kind of has to be less subordinationalist. So to right. unpack that a bit for non-specialists, and I'm a non-specialist in the Christian stuff, but tell me if I've got this right. Uh, subordinationalism is the position in Christianity which we see, uh, arguably, in, for example, Clement of Alexandria, for example, uh, Origen. Whereas, whereby uh, God the Father somehow gives rise to the Son, which for for Clement simply is the divine noose, the demiurgic noose that we're all familiar with from many a Platonist system. And that Son, as in the uh, Gospel of John, everything that is made comes from that Son. So the demiurgic noose creates everything else. And there you have a kind of classic Platonist chain of being mapped onto Christological and, uh, you know, sort of like scriptural understandings. So that's your subordinationism. And that becomes not a tenable position once people start to take the Nicene Creed as seriously as a kind of um, theological, metaphysical document. Because then you have to say that Christ and God and the Holy Spirit are all one Godhead. So you can't have any kind of like multiple levels or anything like that that's right there are no degrees of godhead right or any biblical religion for any true monotheism right which becomes very very tricky because then you get into the thing that sounds simply insane if you're not brought up in a christian context even for people who are brought up in one the notion of one god and three persons yep now, the, the word persons is just atrocious uh, for this, and I'm glad to say Victorinus doesn't use the word person in that sense at all. Uh, he, he uses usia and hypostasis, but not exactly in a coherent way. Okay. Uh, what, what he wants to say in Latin is that there is one divine substance, uh, but the best way to put it is, is to say that there is an inner life to the divine and the inner life. And, and I think both the Cappadocians and, and Augustine draw this out more clearly. The inner life is a self-related life, but, but it's interior to the divine being. So that, so it's as if Augustine in the Trinity tries to say like, I have a mind, I have a will, I have a memory. It is not clear that these are three different things and, and the idea that Augustine has is that we are created in the image of the whole Trinity so that we have a threefold life. Now, this is, this is the idea that Victorinus pioneered. And the Italian scholar uh, Nello Cipriani has argued this more fully and better than anyone else. So Cipriani has really proved that language from Victorinus's Trinitarian treatises shows up in Augustine's early works. The, the ones he wrote uh, right after baptism and and, bef- and before he was uh, before he went back to Africa, but it also shows up in De Trinitate, where Tribune has shown that in De Trinitate, uh, Augustine is criticizing Victorinus's Trinitarian uh, understanding as being deficient and not quite working, but he doesn't uh, Augustine that is doesn't name or condemn Victorinus for these earlier developments. Like Augustine says the, the Holy Spirit is the coppola or the joining 
mm. the, the connector. The glue. Uh, of the Father and Son. And this is language that shows up in Victorinus's hymns, that the Holy Spirit is, is a uh, connexio right. uh, between Father and Son. And, and this is what I think about the early Augustine, and that the mind cannot be compelled. By definition, it is a kind of entity that is above necessity, uh, unlike matter, which is things can be pushed around on the level of matter. A mind cannot be forced. A mind has to be persuaded. Right? And it's persuaded for Victorinus towards salvation in a kind of schema of divine intervention where the Holy Spirit enters our hearts, to use Paul's language, and then in the Trinitarian treatises, Victorinus pulls something out of the Chaldean oracles and he talks about um, the uh, the, the patrikos nous, the paternal intellect, descends and stirs up the figments that are in the soul, that have been laid up in the soul, and that's what converts the person. So Victorinus is probably reading, uh, and this is what Vili Tyler working on Synesius thought, there was a similarity between Synesius's hymns and Victorinus's Trinitarian work, that both appear to draw on Porphyry's commentary in the Chaldean Oracles, which of course we do not we do not have entirety, right? But but only in excerpts. So it, it's just this is kind of what I, I I really love about Victorinus is he doesn't see any incompatibility about bringing Platonist philosophical theology into the Trinitarian treatises or the Paul commentaries. Mm. Uh, and Victorinus is, you know, he again, the sense of humor shows up in, in one of his treatises against Arius. Uh, and this is what Pierre Adot found in his first work on Victorinus. Uh, that, that actually, sorry, sorry, uh, Paul, Paul Henry found it. Uh, that Victorinus simply translated the first line of one of Plotinus's treatises and, and just used it in a Trinitarian treatise with kind of a wink and a nod. To the, to the experts in philosophy who would recognize it, but for everybody else, yeah, he, he just let it go, you know? And this, this tells me, you know, like when you translate something, you remember it, right? Yeah. So if he's translated uh, Plotinus, the text is in his head, and, and he thinks this sentence, you know, uh, the one is all things, uh, mm. but not all things, but it is them, you know, in a transcendent way. Yeah. And, and Paul, yeah. Paul Henry just showed just what a clever, clever translation and in part adaptation that was, but this is this is like things what I do when I'm writing. I'll, I'll translating. If I could get a little phrase of Bob Dylan's, I'll do it. You know, <laughs> I've been known to to cite the odd uh, musical quotation in this podcast without flagging it to anyone. And uh, you know, if anyone notices it, great. If not, also great. It's exactly. But it's just funny to think that for Victorinus, that that, that was fine, mm -hmm. right? And there's this one passage in in the commentary in Ephesians. I think it's uh, Ephesians one eighteen, where uh, that that pseudo Pauline letter is saying, uh, you know, God gave us a spirit of wisdom and revelation. And Victorinus comments on on the term revelation, and he's like, there's two ways by which we know God. One is through revelation, uh, and the other is through being taught. But he says, but it's also the case that some people have something close to revelation. That allows them to see God. I think he's 
thinking about Neoplatonic ascents to the one. Boom. Yeah. No, he says it's close. He doesn't say it's revelation, so it's not like Christ appearing to the Apostle Paul or you know any of those kind of Christian things. He's basically saying that the relationship to the divine reality is such that some people, through a nice phrase he's also an ascent of the mind, mm-hmm. can see, can get something close to the knowledge of God that comes through revelation. And we know how Porphyry in his life, Plotinus, talks about the various times Plotinus achieves that ascent. And he's like, I, Porphyry, I also got there once. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, so he's just open to, it's, it's a kind of, he takes very seriously the biblical witness, but there's also, there's ways in which I think he anticipates uh, Thomas Aquinas's uh, theology where, where Aquinas is straight up the pagan philosophers have been able to know some things about God by reason. Yeah. They know that God necessarily exists. They don't know that God is a trinity. Right. right. So I, so I, uh, so Victorinus anticipates these aspects of scholasticism in, in ways that are, that are quite interesting. And it's just a sort of a sense that no, all pagans are not idiots. Well, all Rather pagans are not come, idiots, but also, I mean, this, it strikes me that he's doing something slightly different from, the, well, very different in a way, in another way, from the scholastics, in that my guess would be, as a, a assiduous reader of Plotinus, as someone who has a late antique understanding of nous and what it is, mm. that when he talks about attaining to this thing that's a bit like revelation or it's the next next door neighbor to revelation he's not talking about propositional knowledge that you can put into a syllogism that someone like thomas aquinas would be familiar with he's talking about a more intimate form of knowing like a a kind of intuitive direct knowing of the divine which when we get to high medieval latinate philosophy we'll talk about because there is a kind of what you might want to call mysticism that pervades what Aquinas is doing, but it's a very different kind of, quote, right. mysticism right. from what these late antique guys are doing. They're talking about a mode of knowledge that's a, like a higher epistemological function altogether from the kind of knowledge that deals uh, with syllogisms. Clearly. Um, right, right. And nothing suggests Victorinus had that, but rather that he accepted that it, that it, it exists. existed and that it was genuine knowledge of God. Yeah. Or, only reason why I pointed to Aquinas is that is that Aquinas, you know, has a spirit where where he would he readily recognize not not only Maimonides and some of the Arabic commentators and Aristotle had genuine knowledge of God, but he also recognized that that Aristotle had knowledge of God. Yeah, you know, and, and this this is just which is to say that one can have knowledge of God even up, even apart from Christian revelation. Now, now I, I totally agree with you that that I think Victorinus is talking about something nigh unto revelation, which is to say vision. One point Victory just says, and I love this, he says, you know how Plotinus uses the expression eke to refer to there, yeah. meaning at the highest levels of reality. Yeah. So this, this um, just for listeners, brief background, the, there's a very strong structuring element within Plotinus's discourse where he talks about the entautha and the eke. So the eke is the noetic reality, entautha is here in what you might call the um, extended spatial temporal reality on earth and the two are this sort of mirror images of each other or rather the entautha is the the shadow of the eke what's happening there please continue oh okay so the passage i'm thinking of in one of the trinitarian treatises victorina says for there 
vision is union. Boom. In other words, so when you ascend, you are being united to those higher realities, mm. uh, which, which is a completely Neoplatonist sentiment. Yes. Uh, because because it's not a vision of anything visible. You are the vision. Right? And so, yeah, and so Augustine in, in, in Book 8 of the Confessions, or sorry, Book 7 of the Confessions, when when he has the first of these attempted ascents that, that, that Paul, Paul Henry has written so marvelously about, uh, Augustine sees that he, he caught a glimpse of the, uh, the sort of the lower level, as if there were levels, of that divine reality, these rays, these intelligible rays bursting through. But Augustine says, but the rays were too powerful and like knocked me back because I was not yet ready to see it. Hmm. And this is what people don't realize about the confessions is that by book seven, I mean, I mean, Augustine's already given up on Manichaeanism by, by book five or so and moves into kind of skepticism. But then through reading the books of the Platonists, he has this vision, which then entails an intellectual breakthrough that happens in book seven, where he feels like, now I know God. And then book eight opens up. And he says, I felt like a new God intellectually, but I needed to hold him more securely. And then there was a problem. So the intellect had been cured for Augustine, but the will, which was addicted, as Augustine thought, to a sexual relationship, had not yet been cured. Mm. Right. So, so that it's it's multiple levels of conversion in the Confessions, and and it's through reading the books of the Platonists that Augustine gets that insight and understands what is meant by a spiritual reality, which he had not grasped before. Right? The whole problem with Manichaeanism is he thought the Manichaeans, uh, they probably were, talking about some kind of different form of matter. He literally did not comprehend immaterial reality prior to reading those books of Plotinus and perhaps Porphyry uh, that Victrinus translated. So I said that I think at the beginning of the introduction of my edited volume, it is no exaggeration to say that when Augustine read these books of these Platonists, his mind was changed and so was the history of Western thought. Boom. And so with, without reading those books of the Platonists, Augustine would not be Augustine. So in that sense, there's an impact of Victorinus on Augustine through those translations. But it sure seems like, as uh, Cipriani has shown, that, that Augustine actually digested and appreciated Victorinus's Trinitarian works, even if later he came to argue against some specific features of them. We're in some sublime territory. We're talking about the Noetic Ascent. We're also talking about Augustine, who is going to be the subject of the very next episode. So I think that is a perfect time to call this to a close. Thank you so much for coming to speak to us about Marius Victorinus and stay esoteric. <laughs>